So we're looking at the topic there is masturbation and pornography. As I started the first page of my notes to you, I said this is possibly the kind of most definitive topic on lust that we'll cover in this course. Um, the Catechism defines lust as being the pursuit of the pleasure of venereal pleasure outside of its purpose, outside of its unitive and procreative purpose. And pornography and masturbation um, are obviously doing that. Um, page one of the notes, I take the catechism definition. By masturbation is to be understood the deliberate stimulation of the genital organs in order to derive sexual pleasure. Then quoting from a previous CDF document, both the magisterium of the church and the constant course of tradition and the moral sense of the faithful have been in no doubt and have firmly maintained that masturbation is an intrinsically and gravely disordered action. Further quote, the deliberate use of the sexual faculty for whatever reason outside of marriage is essentially contrary to its purpose. For here sexual pleasure is sought outside of the sexual relationship which is demanded by the moral order and in which the total meaning of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context of true love is achieved. It goes on to form an equitable judgment about the subject's moral responsibility and to guide pastoral action. One must take into account the effective immaturity, force of acquired habit, conditions of anxiety, or other psychological and social factors that lessen if not reduced to a minimum, moral culpability. And so some of the parts of that is what we're going to want to unpack in this session. So I've noted in the, what scripture and tradition say, objective gravity, subjective guilt, and then the relevance and importance of confession um, and delaying abstaining from communion until then. So I've asked you to read these notes already. Um, have you all had time to do that? This is a section in terms of pastoral implication is big. Uh, in confession, you will either get this mentioned a lot or not at all. So there will be some penitence that will come and it will, you will just notice that purity in its broadest sense is just never mentioned because somehow they don't think of it as relevant um, in terms of whatever catechetical formation they've kind of not had. Um, and then others for whom it almost is the only thing they're bringing. That's the thing that dominates their vision. And then in confession, we need to be always seeking to broaden the horizon. Um, that if that's someone's own obsession, it's going to be harder for them to see elsewhere in their relationship with the Lord and in virtue and whatever else that growth is possible. Question. If you are uh, in confession with somebody and you maybe think it's weird that they're never mentioned sins of purity, what would be the appropriate way to mention that or bring that up? Um, you could say, um, so any so you might want to ask a couple very open-ended questions. So, um, 
you know, any sins in the, in the family home, and then anything with purity. Um, if you ask an open-ended question like that, if they are sufficiently uncatechized, they won't even know what you're meaning at all. Um, often, however, um, the raising of the question does prompt an answer. Um, certainly if there's a teenager where you just suspect they kind of were intending to say something but just got a little embarrassed and didn't say anything, a gentle prompting of a question in a tone of voice that doesn't imply an accusation, um, I've often found that does get a response. I may not have said my general line with, so the Vedamekaman Confessors does talk about the importance of us asking questions as priests. Um, but because many of our penitents are not used to that, uh, I'll always precede my question by saying, um, you know, some gen general thing about um, it's good to be restored in this sacrament, good to have come to the Lord. Um, do you mind if I ask a couple of questions to help you um, examine yourself? And even someone who's not expecting will usually say, okay. And then you've kind of opened a door, um, but you've kind of asked permission first. Um, and then don't immediately leap to purity. Uh, I remember being told that advice many years ago, and I think it's generally speaking, good advice. Um, start with someone's distractions in prayer and then get to more sensitive things. And there is a principle articulated in the Vadimekam. There are some degree of degrees of ignorance that we kind of, in confession, have to leave there if we just sense a general packaging where there's a, just a complete um, inability to process what we need to say right now. You can't do everything in confession. Um, I think we'll come on to that a bit um, on the chastity training session. Okay, so the two pages there on pornography. Um, you know, just to make the point to you historically is a different world just the last couple decades that the internet has utterly changed everything in this regard. Uh, when I was a teenager, in order to view pornography, I'd have had to go into a store, so there'd be the embarrassment level there. Pornography would only have been available on the top shelf of a certain part of um, a magazine rack, and at a young age, you just wouldn't have been able to acquire it. So all of those temptations actually weren't realistic options. So it was, at a very real level, easier to be pure. Um, whereas, that, so the, the various statistics I quote there, you do read different statistics, you know, a bit on different sorts, sources, but it's all the, the same indication at an incredibly young age. So it's reckoned that the average age for children to start viewing hardcore pornography is age 11. Um, and to have been exposed to it at an age where 
before puberty, there'd have been nothing in the desire looking for it, but still having seen it. Uh, page two, um, I, I highlight the word use in the clinical definition of pornography. What is pornography about? Um, it's about using another person. And I think when we're describing it in terms of catechesis, when you're with your parish youth group trying to explain what's wrong about pornography, you're using another person. And it's not a victimless act. So when you view pornography, somebody is counting the fact you are doing that. That affects the um, commercial revenue. That There's a whole chain of causation that you are a part of. That is part of what is going to be locking somebody into that way of life. Um, the, the flip side of using someone is to focus there is a person here. So kind of the second section I start that when tempted to pornography always remind yourself there's a person you are viewing and I list there that person is either someone's sister would you want your sister being viewed that way someone's daughter would you want a daughter of yours being viewed that way someone's mother would you want your mother being viewed that way um, and the actress isn't doing it for fun, she's doing it for money. And even though some presumably start that way of life um, willingly, um, many, you know, if you, if you Google testimony from people that have left the pornography in industry as it is, um, it leaves them feeling horribly degraded. Um, so by viewing it, you are furthering that industry. Um, bottom section of page, page two, the damage of pornography, I note. Um, so the damage to the user, that your brain gets rewired. Sorry, remind me, how many of you have done the Augustine Way course? Half of you. Um, if it is an option for you next year, if it's still, it's just of huge pastoral relevance because that goes through, among other things, how pornography changes the viewer and to kind of heal the brain of that rewiring afterwards is not an easy process. You've read reports of the difficulties of um, the phenomenon of young men who are unable to properly relate to women because all their engagement is via pornography. And this increasing phenomenon of men living with other men, not because they're gay, but because actually they don't want to have a relationship with a woman, um, would engage with women via pornography, but the whole capacity to form relationships is, is damaged. And then for the girl, frequently, fre you know, high school girls being pressured to do things that their boyfriend has seen on pornography sites that she would not want to do 
otherwise. So it damages the viewer, damages other young girls, um, and is going to damage society because it's damaging the capacity for relationships to be formed. Any comments yourselves on my notes here? What, what have I not said? Or what have I said there that is a different perspective? You're all aware of the amount of money that's involved in pornography. Um, so the, well, it was a few years ago that website quotes source, but at that stage, a $13 billion per year industry in the US alone, that's colossal. Um, and then the various statistics that show how much time in the workplace uh, men spend looking at pornography, that it is bad for society on all kinds of levels. And I think there is a distinction between first exposure and first, because as oh, yeah, I phrase yeah. it there, oh, consuming. Okay. Um, yeah. And that's where some of these statistics, it's, it's hard to be sure what, quite what's being said, but it's, it is incredibly young. Um, and it's when, you know, when parents are giving their children smartphones at a young age, they've got to know what goes with that. Skipping over then, uh, page four, just briefly, I've got on page four <clears throat> a brief attempt to summarize where the question of masturbation fits in scripture and tradition. Um, I'm not sure I've read anybody saying this for some decades really, but there was a period after the council among progressive theologians of trying to claim that actually masturbation isn't a, an issue at all, or saying, well, it isn't really in scripture. Um, and that's just not, not a seriously coherent position. Um, so on page one, the footnote I give there, which is taken from the catechism's definition of ma masturbation, the catechism made a point of going through a long list of historical sources that it footnotes. You know, that's the general pattern in the catechism in general. It says something and the footnotes indicate where in the tradition this is asserted. Um, so many places in the tradition where this is said. Um, in terms of what scripture says, I make three points there. Uh, generally about lust, and I just make the point in bold, I say it's not coherent to imagine that our Lord 
can condemn spiritual lust, but not condemn the physical act of masturbation. Um, there's a book I will recommend to you um, for the chastity formation lecture we'll have in a, a couple of weeks. That's by some evangelical Protestants. Um, and because, you know, if you're an evangelical, everything is sola scriptura, where in the Bible does the word masturbation appear? Well, the word isn't there. Therefore, does the Bible say anything? Um, and there's this long argument in the book trying to say, well, if you masturbated in an unlustful manner, then that wouldn't be condemned by Scripture. But lust is condemned, and because that's... We don't need to be sola scriptura. Um, so all kinds of places where the Lord is talking about impurity, lust, um, this is implicit. Um, briefly, in terms of the direct scripture text that is referred to is um, Onan. Um, so the bottom section there, section three, so it's sometimes referred to as the sin of Onanism. Um, so I'm just going to read that passage from um, Genesis there. Judah said to Onan, go to your brother's wife, who is a widow, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So if you remember in the Old Testament, that was the duty. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Um, so when he went to his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he slew him also. So God takes that pretty seriously. He kills Onan. Um, so I specify that the means Onan uses is masturbation. The end is contraception. So evil on both counts. So sometimes you'll refer to Onan in the old manuals with respect to contraception, sometimes referred to with respect to masturbation, it kind of indicates both in different ways. Um, and as good Catholics, we don't need to have a proof text to rest the whole of our case on, but in a sense there is a proof text there if someone's looking for one. But the general thing that I started with the first quote, lust, the seeking of venereal pleasure outside of its proper purpose, that is what masturbation does. So it's hard to imagine a sin that is more directly engaged with in terms of lust than this one. Page five. So this page, I'm trying to make the point, so distinguishing between objective gravity and subjective guilt. So the subjective guilt in the individual acting and the objective gravity of the act considered kind of abstractly of the, the person doing it. Objectively, this is a sin of great gravity. So I say at the top, despite some post-conciliar writers attempting to argue that masturbation was somehow normal or not serious, the church holds that sex is important. 
Uh, and there's this phrase high values used by the, so it's now a dicastery. It was at this stage, the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith that said, according to Christian tradition and the church's teaching and his right reason also recognizes, so even if you're not a Christian, the moral order of sexuality involves such high values of human life that every direct violation of this order is objectively grave. Um, and he goes on to say, so there's no poverty of matter with respect to sex. So in contrast, some matter can fail to be grave due to its small quantity. So in general, theft is grave matter, but stealing an apple from an orchard would be poverty of matter. You went through poverty of matter, grave matter in fundamental moral theology? Okay, so. Okay, just to spell it out though, just to be clear, we're all on the same page. So, three conditions for a sin to be mortal. Um, you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to have consent. And the act itself has to be serious, has to be grave matter, the matter of the act. Um, what defines grave matter? Well, the Ten Commandments specify grave matter, is the, one of the classical answers. Then, of course, the seven deadly sins, pride, lust, uh, covetousness, the deadly sins themselves are categories of mortal sin. Um, so among those, Grave matter is specified by the sixth and ninth commandment, therefore sins of the flesh. Now most of those categories, grave matter, there's a question of quantity, where although the category is grave, the quantity can be so small that it isn't grave. And so theft is the kind of easy example, that theft is a sin against uh, the seventh commandment, um, is thus grave matter. But if it's such a small thing you're stealing, then it's not grave matter. There's poverty of matter. Um, and even then, if you steal an apple from someone who is starving to death, then obviously there's something about the context that measures the quantity. Um, so grave matter isn't as clear-cut as you might want it to be. It's, it, it's not obvious to just say, well, it's those categories. Um, but what the church says, uh, and as I put in some of the footnotes there, um, the SCDF in that document cites a whole long of sources from the tradition indicating this point. Um, and Germain Griset, as I also put in a footnote there, where you'd find in his works, he goes through quite a lot of the history of this, arguing the same point. You can't have a little bit of adultery. Sins of the flesh engage us in such a way, of, with such high values, that the matter is always grave. Now, whether you, your degree of consent is deliberate 
which is necessary for it to be a mortal sin. Whether you know what you're doing in terms of knowing it's sin, those are the big questions. But the, act, the matter itself doesn't admit of poverty of matter. That makes sense as a category. Having said that, bottom little section there saying not all grave sins are equally grave. So the Catechism notes that um, murder is more grave than theft. So both of those are grave matter, but murder is more grave than theft. So what does a mortal sin do? Mortal sin kills the life of grace in your soul. Well, just because something's been killed doesn't mean it's all equally serious. Um, those are kind of slightly different questions, the seriousness of it and whether it's killed the life of grace in your soul. As a clarification of that, let's skip to page 11, so the appendix. So I asked the question whether all sexual sins of thought are grave matter. So if all sexual sins are grave matter, and as I note their sins of thought are among the categories that the Council of Trent is very explicit in saying are, are mortal sins, um, it must follow that sexual sins of thought can be grave matter. But you see towards the bottom of the page there I make a distinction that there's a type of entertaining of a thought, this kind of a thinking about a thinking about a thinking, that is very different from the type of thinking about having sex with someone where the desire is so completely formed that the only thing stopping you engaging in the act is the fact the person isn't right there and willing. So I'm just trying to articulate that there would need to be a number of distinctions in saying sexual thoughts are grave matter. And if you want, if a penitent wants to know exactly, well, is this grave matter? I don't think you can really easily answer that other than saying it clearly is a sinful thought and you shouldn't do it. Um, you're here, you're sorry for it, you've repented, we're leaving it in the past. Um, the general category is grave matter. Um, let's not get obsessed about whether this particular example is or not. If you tried with someone to unpack exactly what they were thinking, that in, its sense, in itself would end up being an occasion of sin because you'd have to revisit the whole thing. So various spiritual writers talk about, in contrast to other sins, where revisiting them can help us distance ourselves from what we did, sexual sins it's better to just not think of again at all.
See the general point I'm trying to make here in terms of distinctions within different sins of thought, but also that generally speaking, a sin of thought regarding sexual matters is grave matter. So that it doesn't hold that, well, it's only a thought, so therefore it doesn't matter. Our thoughts can be very significant. Comments here in terms of what you'd be thinking in confession? Confess it. Well, not do I have to confess it, do I have to abstain from communion if this right. similar thing happens again? <clears throat> yeah, we'll come on to that question. But yes, yeah, so there is a practical implication there. Um, and there is a stage in which someone's wanting a clear, hard line. I don't think there is a clear, hard line. Because there's so many different distinctions you could make in terms of quite what was the nature of the thought. Someone's capacity to be um, honest with themselves about those decisions as well. Um, so I heard Father Brennan make the observation um, that sometimes there's a, as a broad tendency, seminarians can tend to be too careful about this regarding their own sins and then somehow once they become priests to be too careless about their own sins um, that with regular prayer regular spiritual reading um, a structured spiritual life maintaining purity as a priest is not difficult um, but if any of those things slip and you add the stress of parish life and maybe loneliness, um, it is easy for a priest to fall repeatedly and get into a habit of that. Um, whenever there's a priest in that situation, the remedy is very straightforward. We have to come back to the things that our, our seminary formation told us we needed to be doing. The purity is reacquirable and is possible, but it is, is also possible to lose it. And so the bits of your spiritual life, as you sense them drifting, there's a whole package of other things that are gonna end up drifting as well. You've gotta hold on to your prayer, hold on to your spiritual disciplines, um, or else everything else will slip as well. But back to your question, someone who's pushing you for a, a definite answer, some of these things there isn't a definite answer. Um, and some of the, I think you, it would also be, you know, as a professor, honest for me to point out, there's a certain amount where even among the old preconciliar manuals, there would be some difference of opinion or nuance. Um, 
But the general principles I'm articulating here, I'm pretty sure are the tradition. And that where there's ambiguity is clear in what I'm trying to articulate in the principles here too. We'll come back to that when we look at the communion question. So moving on to page six, subjective guilt. So I've, I've tried to articulate objectively the gravity, subjectively what guilt is there. So the first page when I quoted directly from the Catechism on the definition of masturbation, it noted factors that can reduce subjective guilt for this objectively grave sin. Affective immaturity, anxiety, psychological or social factors, and force of acquired habit. Um, I then added a section on ignorance. So I think in our context, there are many who will be raised with such poor catechesis, they will be ignorant of this and therefore not blameworthy as well. That's a different category, but a, a real thing too. Have I broken down that example with you earlier in this course? I know I did in the Life in Christ course, but. Well, just what I list there. So that a teenager can be evil persuasions, vicious customs and corrupt habits. These are the three ways Thomas says that things that we're capable of knowing in the natural law, that a teenage boy just by natural reason, even without the Bible and Christian help, should be able to realize as he's growing up. Nonetheless, each of those three can prevent him knowing. Um, so evil persuasions that you are taught in your school classes that this is just normal and healthy, because that is what is taught in our secular schools now. Um, so the teenage boy grows up in a Catholic home, but what is he taught at school? He's taught, well, masturbation's just a healthy, normal thing. Don't do it too much, but it's, it's a healthy, normal thing. Slightly different, but linked with vicious customs. So the practice of the society around you. So all your peers talk about the best pornography websites. This is, you know the custom of the society around you, even though people aren't arguing for it in persuasion. Um, that blinds your ability to see. But then corrupt habits. So I say eventually one's own sins cloud one's intellect and you can't judge properly anymore. And say so if this is caused by your previous sins, then your resulting ignorance is blameworthy. Um, so just because you don't see your sin, your ignorance, doesn't mean you're not to blame for your ignorance, the Catechism says. There's a difference between invincible and invincible ignorance. Some of our ignorance is our own fault. But ignorance is, I'm trying to, my basic point there, another factor that would affect someone's guilt. They might just not know this thing is wrong at all. And certainly I've come across many Catholic teenage boys who are just utterly clueless about these questions because 
they're taught in their schools that this is healthy and normal. Um, at the bottom there, I note uh, the change in the different um, edition, drafts of the Catechism. So that the first draft, the 1992 draft, said that the factors that are listed at the top of the page can remove guilt, um, even extenuate moral culpability. The final official edition said that guilt can be reduced to a minimum rather than saying it can be removed altogether. Um, that's, it was a very deliberate choice. There were a number of deliberate revisions made in the catechism as things were being refined in the final drafts. That was one that was um, much commented on. Effective immaturity, anxiety, psychological social factors, force of acquired habit. What distinction are you meaning by that? Um, so culpability and guilt would probably be interchangeable. Okay. So when you say you're guilty for something, you mean you're culpable, um, which is the same thing as saying it's imputable to you. Uh, if you're not, there's a way of doing something where I have done it, but I wasn't guilty for what I did in a moral sense. I think guilt also carries a connotation of just you're feeling bad about something. Culpability is more of it actually is charged against you. Yeah, uh, it has an objectivity about it, yeah. Deep. But you're right, so guilt in the English language we're tending to imply feelings and remorse or sadness at least whereas culpability is just whether you're to blame. And I suppose in this section, the, the meaning I'm indicating is whether you're to blame. So that you might do this and not be to blame at all with the ignorance question, or might do this and only be partially to blame because of the other factors. And there's a range of other factors there. Um, comments on those factors? So in like youth groups and stuff, I mean, I think it seems like it's probably good to make sure this is brought up. But there are some kids, at least growing up in the Catholic homeschool world, there's some kids who this is just not, they're not aware of it because they're not in the schools. Their friends are all you know, trying to be good Catholics. So at some point, where do you draw the line between like, okay, you need to talk about this, but also not wanting to teach somebody about it if it's not a thing for you? Right. And I think it is important to realize there are teenage boys who grow up um, without masturbating at all, um, let alone for whom it's been just an incredibly rare thing. 
And then if some youth group talk, you imply, well, I know you're all doing it, but you can stop. You might then cause someone to start doing it because they think, well, it's not that serious. That I think you just have to phrase it very carefully. Um, so not to phrase it with the presumption that you are all doing it. Um, I've heard priests do that intending to be realistic, but it ending up coming across actually as an accusation. You're all doing it, I know. Um, or you just cause someone who is in a state of great purity to drop their, to, to, to offer a temptation to them that they were previously resisting successfully. So I think the primary answer to your question is you have to be just very aware of that risk as you talk about these things. And as a pastor, you will probably have both internal and external knowledge if we think of the forums in the seminary context. So you also need in what you say to be very clear that you're not speaking in a way that somebody thinks you're saying this because of what someone else has said. Because that just really undermines the credibility of confession, the confessional seal. Um, and yet it will give you a generalized knowledge of what our issues are not. As a model, yeah. yeah, you could do it that way. And you could frame it in terms of um, if you come across guys that aren't living this, what encouragement could you offer to them? Would be a way of kind of deflecting it slightly, but still making it applicable to them if necessary. Um, so I think if you're just aware of those risks of leading someone to sin by presenting it to them as if you're probably doing this already. Um, I know we discussed in the seminary this is also part of a, a risk for the formators to talk about this with a group where the majority have no significant failings in this regard and because we're addressing a small number, um, we bring everybody down. Um, but I think part of the answer is to just be self-aware of that before you start speaking. I would say though, I think it is easier to address this to a group than to individuals in terms of it being less of a one-on-one -on -one accusation. It's also important, so you know, in general, safe environment protocols to have 
an adult with you when you're with a group of teenagers. Um, for this kind of discussion, you need an adult that you trust and that they're not going to misinterpret everything you've said because they're just not on board with the whole concept of purity in general. That you can imagine there are a great number of our, you know, a type of parishioner who's wanting to help you with youth work, but then is just not on board with any of this. And you talk about this and they feel you're um, manipulating or whatever else you end up getting accused of. So just be aware of that as a risk too. I did have one session with a youth group where I spoke about pornography in this regard. Um, and someone said afterwards, well, what if the parents didn't want you talking about that? Um, and I would say, well, the parents are, are fully welcome to withdraw their children from the youth group. If they don't think they want their children to be um, guarded against... Yeah, I mean, there would be kind of your initial question, do they feel I'm raising something that isn't suitable for their children because their children are so pure? They haven't heard their children's confessions. Um, but generally, in my experience, if the parents, parents trust me and I've engaged with them in a way that they, in a sense, have a reason to, they're happy, they want me to be raising these things because they want their children to be pure. Okay, let's move on to page seven. Um, so here I raise the question of knowing whether you're in a state of mortal sin. So this is a kind of a preamble to the question of whether someone should be going to communion or not. So if you're in a state of mortal sin, you shouldn't be going to communion. How can you know whether you're in a state of mortal sin? Or to put that in reverse, how can you know whether you're in a state of grace? If you're in a state of grace, you're not in a state of mortal sin. If you're in a state of mortal sin, you're not in a state of grace. Um, So at the top of the page, I phrase it this way. I say, some people attempt to excuse themselves from confessing impurity because they tell themselves, well, I don't know whether it was actually a mortal sin because I don't know whether I fully consented or had a reduced guilt. And I don't need to confess venial sins. I don't need to. Um, so what, um, what is meant by full knowledge in terms of knowing what... So full knowledge is one of the conditions of mortal sin. Um, and there's a, a whole range of poor catechesis that has misunderstood that. Um, so what have I tried to articulate here? Full knowledge means you know it's a sin. So quoting the catechism, mortal sin requires full knowledge. It presupposes knowledge of the sinful character of the act, of its opposition to the law of God. Now that is a fairly low threshold. You know it's a sin. That doesn't mean you know kind of everything about it because none of us ever fully comprehend good 
or evil, but we know it's a sin. That's what's got to be known. I say, what does it not mean? I say, it does not mean that you explicitly know it's destroying the life of grace in your soul, that there is more, that it is mortal sin per se. I quote Elizabeth Anscombe, um, moral theologian in this regard. She says, what it means is that you've got to know what you are doing, not in the sense that what you are doing is mortal sin, but in the sense that what you are doing is putting poison in your husband's soup. So in parallel, I know I'm watching pornography. I know I'm masturbating. I know these things are sinful. Whereas if you didn't know these things were sinful, then you wouldn't have full knowledge. So it does not mean you explicitly choose to reject God in this act. And then as um, John Paul II and the SCDF articulate, if that was the case, and you do read a certain type of post-conciliar theologian try and argue this, then the only mortal sin would be contempt for God. And obviously contempt for God is a mortal sin. I know God, I have contempt for him in choosing to do this anyway. That isn't the only type of mortal sin. trying to think what version of the notes I gave you, how long a quote I had here. There are those, yeah, can you read that quote section for us? There are those who go so far as to affirm that mortal sin, which brought a separation from God, only exists in the form of refusal directly opposed to God's call. A person therefore sins mortally not only when his action comes from direct contempt for love of God and neighbor, but also when he consciously and freely, for whatever reason, chooses something which is seriously disordered. So it's not only formal refusal of God that is this full knowledge, um, but just actions that in themselves, this is what we mean by grave matter, in themselves are somehow contradicting what that love for God has to have implicit within it. So when I commit murder, I don't need to be thinking of God, thinking I do this rejecting you, I just know I'm killing someone. And the act of killing someone who is in the image of God has implicit within it a rejection, uh, a killing of the life of grace. Sins of the flesh in a different way, but real way, have built in them um, such high values, to use that phrase we've already quoted, that they kill the life of grace within us. The question of what's meant therefore by full knowledge in terms of what constitutes mortal sin, this is a fundamental moral theology question but I'm trying to reiterate to it, it to you in this class. Bottom section there, I'm trying to summarize what St. Thomas Aquinas says. So he's saying 
that you just can't know whether you're in a state of grace or whether you're in a state of mortal sin. That's a type of knowledge that just escapes you. So the, the four points I make there, we can't feel grace because grace is supernatural. It's not a feelable, sensible thing. We deceive ourselves, self-deception. Third, more technically, the difference in actual and sanctifying graces. Would you have gone through that in, that would be theological anthropology, I think is within that course. I've been talking with Father Bernard just how much he has to cover in that course. So I can imagine there are a few things that get said, but said very quickly. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot on grace. Yeah. Grace. The distinction between actual grace and sanctifying. So you can do something, but somehow not in a way that it then embeds in you in habitual grace, sanctifying grace. So just to look at yourself and say, oh, well, I gave that money to that poor person, so I must be in a state of grace, doesn't necessarily follow. Um, so three reasons there why you can't look at yourself and just know whether you're in a state of grace. See, four though, St. Thomas says, nonetheless, a person might conjecture that he's in a state of grace if certain outward indications suggest it, such as delighting in God. But he says this knowledge is imperfect. So I say it follows that we should be cautious in assuming that we're not in a state of mortal sin, especially if we realize we've performed an act that is grave in its matter. So if you've performed an act that is grave in its matter, can you be certain you're in a state of mortal sin? Can you be certain that it was a mortal sin that you committed? No, that kind of knowledge is just not available to you in this life. You can know you should repent of it and take it to confession. You know it was grave matter. Um, that much is an uh, abstract concept you can be sure of. And so someone who is kind of wanting to cling to, well, I only have to confess venial sins, there's a reason why the tradition has encouraged us to confess venial sins, because that hard line, just there isn't a hard line between self-knowledge of whether it's a venial or mortal sin. And even when you take it to the priest, there's some things that you as a priest will be able to say, well, no, that was venial. Um, that there are some, without wishing to sound too dismissive, some weird things people will confess that you can very comfortably reassure them uh, that wasn't, a, that wasn't grave matter. It couldn't have been a mortal sin. But even you as a well-educated priest who's done many moral, theologian, moral theology courses, there will be some things put to you, you can't know. You can know they're sorry, they've come to confession, it's absolved, it's history. Um, and that I think it has to be 
a really important bottom line of what we're saying to somebody in this situation. Take it to confession. There's a way to be out of this. Um, it's not complicated. And that as the flip side, that we as priests have to make ourselves very available for confession. Okay, I'm already running out of time now. Confession before communion. So you can see what I've articulated there. Um, you can see at the top of the page, there are two categories that are described. Um, going to communion and celebrating Mass if you're a priest. So the category is there in the mind of the Church. Um, a priest commits a sin in this regard Saturday night. He then has an eight o'clock Sunday morning Mass. For the sake of the people, Mass needs to be said. So he has to make a perfect act of contrition, which includes the intention of getting to confession as soon as he morally um, has moral possibility. So on a Sunday morning, it's technically possible to wake up your brother priest in the next parish at three o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, that's, that's physically possible, but it's not morally possible. Um, when moral possibility allows it, your perfect act of contrition includes the resolution to get that resolved then. What would be a time frame for it to be reasonable for someone to not go to communion? I make the comparison there with general absolution in terms of a time frame of as long as a month where if you're, if not receiving general absolution would deny you communion for longer than that, then general absolution is permitted. Which I think gives a rule of thumb that there isn't, in a sense, a right to Holy Communion more than that. And for us who live in a culture where it's become normative that everybody goes to communion every time they go to Mass, everybody goes to communion in a seminary every day, we've kind of lost sight of the fact that this is the only time in the tradition of the church when this has been the case. Even when we look back and we see these various saints talking about the importance of going to communion frequently, even once a week, um, they're not envisaging our scenario. So there are many different graces, uh, I've heard many priests say, available that come to us by that type of faithfulness of taking communion seriously enough to abstain when we're not properly disposed, to abstain when we haven't been able to get to confession. And while there isn't a hard line in, in terms of a church document of a time frame for that, um, I've tried to indicate a criteria there. Yeah. Maybe a Camelot question, but um, for those um, who are denied communion for um, public scandalous reasons, politicians, etc., do they have a right to communion once a month then? Or is that 
different scenario entirely because there the person isn't isn't able to go to confession because they're not actually sorry for their state. This is different if we're envisaging someone who actually is sorry but hasn't got to confession. Um, at a certain point, if you're dealing with someone regularly, the challenge of are you actually sorry? Is there, you know, sorrow includes the resolution not to do this again, to not be attached to your sin in a way that you're kind of sorry, but really you are intending to do this again. So Father Brennan sometimes phrases this to guys that, well, how much effort are you putting in on this to, to overcome this? You know, he likes to put everything in terms of, on a scale of one to 10, um, where are you? Um, and he'd say, if he says to a guy, how much effort are you putting into overcoming this? And the guy says, well, about a four. But then to still think you're okay to present yourself for communion all the time. If you're putting in a nine in your effort and still somehow falling in a way that indicates your capacity to overcome this is not due to your own negligence, that's a different category from when that capacity is somehow not putting in the effort. And again, there isn't an, a clear-cut yes-no answer to some of these things. But my experience in confession and outside is the more I kind of present to somebody the reasons, the more someone will take for themselves a better step and sometimes a stricter step than if I just tried to lay down a law. The last thing I want to cover with you this morning, and I know there is a lot we've just kind of had to breeze through, is on page nine, the, distinct, the, the question of gradualism. Have you heard of this as a general pastoral concept, gradualism? I've heard of it before, I've never had it fully explained. So in recent years, um, John Paul II, in, as the various footnotes quote him saying, made this distinction between the law of gradualism and a gradualism of the law. So a mistaken gradualism of the law would somehow kind of think that, well, different people, the law means different things to them. And he's saying that just isn't right, that something is wrong or it is right, whether or not you're doing it and wherever you are in the scale of perfection, what's right and wrong remains the same. The law of gradualism, in contrast, says when we're dealing with people, we need to be aware that they change gradually, slowly. Now, I would add to that, you also see people change gradually, but then in jumps. That there will, it's not just a slow increase, that there will be moments where their purity, in particular here, will just kind of make a leap of progress. And I often say that to people as a word of hope to them. Um, so, you know, I've seen teenage boys who have been thoroughly immersed in this and come to a moment, come to a realization, 
maybe at a weekend retreat, maybe in response to a sermon you give, and just there's a complete changing of maybe the effort they're putting into this, but you can see a changing in the effect of, of their behavior after. So gradualism is the general thing here. People change gradually. So you as a priest, as a confessor, you're listening to them. You need to be aware they're going to change gradually. So I think at the recent um, Chase celibacy thing, the scenario was flagged up well, uh, and I think it was mockingly flagged up as it's been paraphrased to me, but you tell some, someone, well, you know, you're watching pornography and you're masturbating, just for now, just stop the pornography, but kind of don't worry about the masturbation. So you're at least gonna improve in that regard. That's not sound advice because you're actually telling someone in that to continue that sin, even though they're going to discontinue the other. You can, in a spirit of gradualism, tell them to focus on something, to try and help identify this, as you're describing it, is the key to changing your behavior. Focus your efforts on that. You know, it might be that the key to the struggle is what's done with the phone and where the phone is kept or the iPad is kept, that that will be the trigger that it ends up being the whole line of sin that follows. If, if they can focus on that, other things will follow, which is different from saying just sin less this week, but still sin. That's not acceptable advice. Yeah, because the one's like allowing or encouraging sin, and the other one's saying, okay, work on this particular thing this week. Right. Not that you're not striving for perfection. And not that you, in terms of giving the advice, that you don't end up saying, but just continue in that sin, because then you are advising someone to sin. So Germain Grise, as I quote and I footnote there, uh, he pulls this apart quite clearly. Um, so as I quote him, someone who attempts to reduce sexual sins only gradually has an effective will to actually continue committing such sins. Not committing them at all remains only an inefficacious wish. Gradualism in this false sense involves a present will to commit a certain quota of sins, while presumably telling oneself that this quota will be less than before. Break more than that, uh, then you're in trouble. Like I think that was their 
So at the end of one week, they hadn't broken any panes of glass at all. So they, to celebrate, they took one of the giant sheets of glass over the top of the building. Yeah. And that's, this is different, the book beforehand is different than afterwards saying, okay, well, you made it, you did better this week. That's exactly, exactly, yes, yes. So encouragement afterwards, yes, that would be very different. And so any progress you see in that regard, I think is a thing in confession to really point out to someone, you have changed this week. That is a sign you can change even more. We'll note when we come on to chastity formation, that lecture, um, that there are real hurdles to be overcome in this regard. So the body, even at a physical hormonal level, gets addicted to certain physical rushes that come with masturbation. Um, and it's a bit like someone coming off cocaine that, um, you know, that the phrase, I mean, I've not had first-hand experience of coming off cocaine, but um, that you hit a wall at a certain stage of the withdrawal process and kind of the entire body kind of quakes and trembles and can't cope. Um, something similar happens in the withdrawal from regular masturbation. And that's a thing to point out to a young guy so that he knows there will come a time when there will be a hurdle to cross. If you can push past it, it will get easier. It won't remain forever at that level of difficulty. Okay, that's, we've covered a lot today. Um, And this is a topic, big pastoral relevance. Um, try, you as a priest, you have to be strong. You have to be compassionate, but you have to be strong. There are all kinds of things when it will just be more convenient to say nothing, more convenient in the, in the pulpit, with the youth group, in the confessional, to just say nothing. We have to be inwardly strong in terms of pushing ourselves to face these issues while also being compassionate and careful and thoughtful in how we phrase these uh, to the people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as the beginning is now and ever shall be, world without end. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.